Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am uh, Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, James Crepia. And we will go over, on this week's edition of the program, uh, we will go over Oregon's win over Stanford and take a look ahead to this week's matchup with Arizona, chat with Arizona beat reporter Michael Lev of the Arizona Daily Star and get a uh, early look at the Wildcats ahead of Saturday night's game in Tucson, but first, uh, looking back at the 45-27 win for the Ducks over Stanford, and to be honest, uh, for as much offense as there was, and there certainly was a lot on the ground for the Ducks in this game, it's kind of almost strange to say in a game where they score 45 points and put up over 500 yards and run for 351, you know, the most rushing yards for them uh, on a per carry basis in a very, very, very long time, and <laughs> particularly against FBS competition. But truly, and matter-of-factly, there's almost not much to go over, uh, which is just kind of bizarre to say. But truly, this was as dominant a performance, particularly offensively and on the ground, as really you could draw up. And it's almost odd to say because of the series history between Oregon and Stanford. And that had so long uh, been kind of the measuring stick for – the division, uh, and I realize we're now in a divisionless world, even though we're still in a uh, division-based schedule. But obviously, Stanford has fallen on some hard times, injuries, and everything else that's gone on there. You know, some talent deficiency uh, has really begun to sneak up on them, and just obviously things have gotten away from them a little bit. So Oregon was favored by three scores going into the game. And, you know, for those who are interested in such things, they may just sweat that out a little bit at the end. But ultimately, no matter what the fourth quarter ended up playing out like, that, like I say, especially in the first half, was just a dominant performance uh, and could have been significantly a bigger lead uh, and even more in Oregon's control even earlier, if not for some early penalties and miscues and things like that. And that game could have easily been 28 uh, nothing, almost in the first quarter. Uh, that was just a, like I say, a really dominant performance all around. So, Starting first and foremost in the big picture with, uh, obviously, the, the ground game. Bo Nix putting forth uh, a career day. You know, even if you take the 80-yard run out of it, which is, <laughs> yeah, if you take out the biggest you know, play of the game. But truly, uh, even if you take that out of it, he still would have had five carries for 61 yards. Uh, and one of those was, of course, a sack, the first allowed by the Ducks all year for a loss of one. 
So if you take out the 80-yard upside and you take away the one-yard sack on the downside, he still had four carries for over 40 yards, you know, over 10 yards of carry. Um, so closer to 15 yards carry, really, around uh, 60 yards. So point is, a dominant day was had even when you take out the highest of highs and even the, like I say, the one sack. Um, a dominant day on the ground for Knicks. A strong day passing, not the greatest. They did not connect on uh, several deep throws that they had. Some uh, really kind of, if you want to say blame, but if you want to say, all right, well, how can we miss this one? How can we miss that one? One, hey, the throw's got to be there. Hey, another receiver's got to get there. Uh, And on a couple of others, really for the first time this season, we saw Knicks, I I would say, kind of force it a little bit, a little bit. it ended up looking like double coverage for all intents and purposes at the end. It wasn't double coverage the whole way, uh, just because of the way that Stanford was playing it at the back end. But ultimately, the ball's got to get out a little bit earlier to avoid it looking like double coverage at all uh, and for it to just not end up the way it did on a couple of those deep throws. Having said that, because of the way Stanford was playing uh, on the back end in the secondary and because they generally do that across the board, they don't allow very many deep throws. They don't. Um, they didn't. Entering the game, you know, for as many points as they allowed and for, you know, as rough a season as they're having, they make teams earn it. And, you know, outside of, you know, maybe one or two plays uh, in their prior couple of games, the vertical passing game was not exactly an area that uh, Stanford was allowing all these like 40 and 50 yard bombs. It just wasn't the case. So Orton couldn't quite connect there, but they made up for it with 9.5 yards of carry. Like I say, that's still with a, uh, you know, with one sack allowed in the game. So having said all that, as I say, obviously Nick's had a huge day uh, on the ground in particular, four touchdowns overall uh, between two on the ground and two in the air. Uh, Bucky Irving doesn't end up getting in the end zone from a uh, rushing standpoint, but 10 carries for 97 yards is also uh, obviously a terrific performance. Uh, knowing Noah Whittington, for that matter, 11 carries, 66 yards. And that's how you end up. How do you get with 9.5 yards a carry? Well, when 27 carries uh, go for nearly 300 of those yards, that's that'll do it. And that, that, that pretty much explains it all right there. Defensively, uh, and I realize, again, that Stanford got some uh, some points late to, to make it look a little bit better than it was. Um, I thought this was a really strong game. Uh, overall for Oregon, particularly in the tackling uh, aspect of things. Yeah, there were a couple of missed tackles here or there, but ultimately uh, when tackling had been an issue again uh, the week before against Washington State, some of that just created because Washington State puts the ball uh, in space and allows their receivers to go you know, make plays in space, force the defense to make tackles in space. Stanford uh, you know, really relies on its size a lot, and between Bennett Williams, who had a really, really excellent game, um, yes, he got, you know, if you want to say beat, I, I don't, I, I don't even really know if you say that he got beat per se, uh, on one of the late touchdown passes, which shows the throw from McKee, uh, on the touchdown, uh, to Higgins late shows exactly what on the upside, what Stanford's offense could be capable of. Uh, and that's kind of the example of you go, how in the world is this offense uh, with this quarterback who's capable of that throw uh, and has a receiving core with all this size uh, and catch radius, if they're capable of that on the upside, my goodness, if they could just get out of their own way from sacks and 
you know, frankly, I'm not sure the slow mesh is really the best uh, option offensively for them, given all that. But that's their problem. That's for them to sort out. Uh, bottom line, as I, say, I thought Bennett Williams played really well. Uh, Noah Sewell, obviously forced the fumble that Noah Sewell recovers, and that obviously changed the entire game there late in the uh, first half when it goes from a pretty competitive spot to just completely and utterly gets away from Stanford. When it's 31-3 at halftime, the game is over. I mean, there's absolutely no way uh, that Stanford is going to mount a comeback at that point. And obviously, Oregon, like I say, takes total control. And then in the fourth quarter, uh, especially the final eight minutes, but really for all intents and purposes, the entire fourth quarter, uh, that, that, you know, it was completely garbage time uh, and, and just a non competitive situation. So that's why I say, as strange as it is to say, 500 plus yards, um, pretty matter of fact, not much to actually go over and assess, truly. It's just a dominant performance. Uh, Christian Gonzalez played extremely well uh, in coverage, has played very well, but in his toughest individual matchup so far of the season. He and others who match up Michael Wilson, the Ducks did a terrific job keeping him contained. Two catches for 14 yards. Uh, he was targeted three other times, and each of those three other times, Gonzalez was on him, uh, and he came up, you know, not not completing the pass. Uh, there was a holding penalty on Gonzalez. It was, it, the shame of it was that it was totally unnecessary, uh, and that McKee was forced to throw it away, and it. it Really was totally unnecessary on the play. Uh, but that aside, Gonzalez had a huge night. I think uh, by my count, two of six when targeted uh, for seven yards against, again, just a, a bevy of really, really big and good receivers. So he had a big night. The secondary as a whole had a pretty big night. Uh, and like I say, uh, Williams in a um, tackling capacity in particular, Brandon Dorless uh, and Casey. Uh, Casey Rogers on the defensive line had big nights, uh, Dorless in particular. All in all, you, know, you could count a lot of individual performances that were pretty good in this game. The one, of course, uh, major thorn in the side for the Ducks in the game as a whole, uh, and an issue that we will obviously uh, discuss quite a bit this week uh, and probably into the bye week, quite honestly, because it's something that has gone on for the entire first half of the season and it just gets really away from them in this game was the penalties. I mean, 14 penalties for 135 yards. And I know everybody, everybody's got, you know, no matter what fan base it is, whenever there's that many penalties, you know, every call is terrible. Well, it's just not true in <laughs> this game. <laughs> it's just not. Uh, there were basically hardly any of those 14 were even remotely arguable. You know, for everybody who wants to freak out about the horse collar tackle on Steve Stevens, that wasn't. I mean, frankly, you got to be kidding. Who cares? Yes, it was a bad call. You're right. It netted Stanford a grand total of five yards. And on the next play, Oregon scores an 80-yard touchdown from Bo Nix. So of all the penalties to, you know, blow a gasket over, that's not the one. You know, if it was one that actually had any kind of tangible impact on the game, I'd say, boy, you know, you really got a case, you know, take take it to the to the mats. But that just wasn't. You know, I'm not saying, you know, just accept the bad call. Yes, that was not a particularly good call. But there were still 13 other penalties. Uh, and even if you take aside the snap infractions and false starts and those things because of on-field um, disconcerting signals or anything else between the offense and the defense, I, I don't just make an excuse for that. All right, contextualize that all you want. Fine. The two that are obviously egregious uh, to me uh, and that really Oregon has to clean up, absolutely has to clean up 
uh, and can't allow to persist are the personal fouls and the uh, post-snap stuff. Anything pre-snap with motions and all that, even offensive holding uh, when offensive linemen are in motion and stuff and uh, getting out in space. Uh, Again, these are things that are more corrected by technique or those sorts of things. The discipline stuff, when Chris Hudson gets a 15-yarder for tossing a ball at a Stanford player on a punt return. This isn't about making excuses. I don't want to hear about, well, an official was here, an official was there, he was trying to get it here. Hey, bottom line, was the other player there? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you go back and look at it, one of the members on the sideline for the Ducks immediately, instantly, uh, one of the members of the sports staff, I believe it was, instantly reacts and just news before the flag even comes out that Hudson's going to get flagged for that. I mean, it, it, there's no question. So how about don't leave it up to interpretation or where a referee is or anything else. If you want to hand the ball to the ref, hand the ball to the ref. You want to ensure that there isn't another player there by happenstance or purpose? Uh, don't do it. Don't allow it to happen. And that's one instance. The fighting call on McGee. I'm not down there. Obviously, we haven't spoken to Seven McGee, so it's not a matter of trying to sort out what he meant to do. Obviously, he tweeted out after the game. He was standing up for teammates. That aside, the play happens. The ball gets stripped from him. Okay, his forward progress was stopped, so the whole everything that happened thereafter and Nick's trying to go make a tackle, and I'm not going to fault him in any way. All right, his helmet comes off not because of anyone's fault. It's just kind of a happenstance thing. And then from there, the sideline gets involved and all the rest. Fine, fine. But point is, the game's well in hand. There's no reason for any of it. Yes, when a hit like that happens on a quarterback and a helmet comes off, and even though Nix was fine, obviously, and it's near any sideline, if it happened on the Stanford sideline and, you know, shoes on the other foot, guess what? The sideline's going to get involved. That's, that is going to happen. But for, in this case, you know, for Seven McGee to come from on the backside of the play, having been involved in it earlier with the ball being stripped, uh, and to, what a coincidence, find the player who stripped the ball from him who had nothing to do with the hit on Knicks. Uh, and then whether you want to say it's a shove, whether you want to say it's a half a punch, whether you want, whatever. Again, just don't even put yourself in the situation. It doesn't matter about the context. Again, if the shoe's on the other foot, Oregon fans are freaking out that the Stanford player did it. And I know Fields tossed the helmet that – I'm not, it's not a matter of defending of calls that didn't happen or this. I'm talking about 14 penalties for 135 yards. That's it. And one, you can object to all you want, and it still doesn't make a lick of a difference in terms of overall outcome um, or sequence to the score of the game. The others that are totally within Oregon's control, particularly discipline stuff, those are things that have to get fixed and have to get addressed because against a team who doesn't have a massive talent efficiency when you're at home and in control of a game. Those are penalties that are going to cost you badly. You know, if you think that Oregon can commit 14 penalties for 135 yards uh, against Utah in November, I don't care where that game's being played. Uh, I don't think so. So those are things that Oregon has got to correct. And frankly, would probably have to even correct even this weekend because Arizona is not a great team. They are not loaded with talent. They're still at the beginning of a building process, but uh, as we'll discuss with Michael Leff here in a couple of minutes, um, 
they are still really talented at receiver, extremely talented at receiver, and could pile up some points. They are throwing the ball all over the park. And Jaden Delore is a mobile quarterback, and he's going to shift the pocket. And again, obviously, I don't have to remind everybody with him because he played at Washington State for a couple of years. You know what you're getting with him. They are throwing the ball extremely well. They have probably the deepest uh, receiving core at the top end of things from a talent standpoint, uh, maybe in the league. They're certainly putting up the numbers to back it up. And if this becomes a shootout at Arizona, that and where not many things go uh, Oregon's way the past decade, that's not the kind of game you want to be in, in general, and especially if you're going to you know commit a whole bunch of penalties. So plenty of things for Oregon to clean up. Having said that, though, like I say, really a matter-of-fact win outside of that uh, with obviously a dominant running performance. And that's a main positive heading into um, this game with Arizona where not just, uh, oh, the outcome and putting up 350 rushing yards. Arizona's run defense is terrible. That is one area where the Wildcats are really susceptible. Uh, And with Oregon coming off of a performance where a defense who tries to keep the lid on and who forces you, in this case, to run a bit, and they have that kind of a success, to now be going up against a team on the road, to be going up against a team who can't stop the run. You know you know, you have kind of that safety valve that's there at all times almost, uh, where Oregon should feel extremely confident that it can run the ball pretty much at will on Arizona. It would be borderline stunning. Uh, if they didn't, I'm not saying they're going to put up 350 and 9.5 a carry again, but it would be truly amazing uh, from a statistical standpoint if Oregon doesn't top not just 100, probably 150, maybe even north of 200 yards rushing at Arizona. And historically speaking, if Oregon tops 200 yards rushing, they're not losing the football game. So, and unless Arizona comes forth with far and away its best defensive performance of the season, it will be very, very hard. Uh, for Oregon not to win the game just based on that. Uh, Forget about anything else. Forget about penalties. Forget about turnovers. Forget Arizona's passing game, anything else. Uh, If Arizona can't stop Oregon's run game, which is playing at an extremely high level right now, top 10 in the country, uh, then it's going to be a long night for the Wildcats. And that's one thing that the Ducks can certainly feel, again, very, very confident in heading into Saturday night's game in Tucson. We will take a look ahead to that matchup. And to get a look at the Wildcats from Michael Lev, coming up. And we welcome to the program this week to take a look at the Arizona Wildcats, Arizona beat reporter for the Arizona Daily Star, Michael Lev, who you can follow on Twitter as always at Michael J. Lev. Welcome to the show, sir. Hi, James. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Appreciate you for uh, giving us some time this week, Michael, and give us a look at the Wildcats. Well, Uh, Let's start on the most broad picture in general, uh, because, and I think you can uh, obviously understand this, Michael, uh, I'm sure, (laughs) as you had to endure some pretty bad football uh, at Arizona the past couple of years, uh, for many of the Ducks fan, uh, they remember last year's game, they remember that it was closer than they ever wanted it to be, they remember that Arizona played a certain way, and they played multiple quarterbacks, and guys got hurt, and it was two and three tight end sets, and really kind of a trudging kind of a game. And that they felt uh, angry and annoyed leaving the stadium and Arizona felt uh, pretty good. And then they stopped paying attention because Arizona lost a whole lot of football games after that, um, even though things started to look you know, better at times, but there was still a bunch of losses. Having said all that, uh, that's all they remember. And 
for those who have not been keeping track, uh, Arizona is nothing like the football team <laughs> that was that was at Hudson Stadium last year because of just the sheer volume of roster churn. Uh, so on the 30,000-foot perspective, uh, give Ducks fans who have not been pay- paying particularly close attention to Arizona the past year uh, a very broad view of exactly how different this Arizona team is than even a year ago. Yeah, that that is literally true. Uh, Arizona has turned over roughly 45% of its roster. Since last year, I believe the total is 51 newcomers. And I think the roster right now is sitting at 110 players total. So nearly half. And that was all intentional. You know, uh, there's only so much that Jed Fish and his staff could do in year one. Um, they got here and he got here in late December you know, the pandemic was still going on. He conducted his first, you know, media um, in- interface here uh, via Zoom. So that just gives you some context of, of where things were. And he pretty much kind of rode with you know, the roster that was here. They brought in some guys in the portal, um, but they didn't have a full recruiting class. They didn't have a robust group of walk-ons. Well, they went to work from there. Uh, they made a lot of changes. And some of them have been really impactful. Um, a few examples, uh, Jaden Delora, I think everyone knows who he is, um, you know, transfer from Washington State, threw six touchdown passes this past week, threw for 484 yards against Colorado. Jacob Cowing, uh, the wide receiver from UTEP, guy that everybody wanted um, and has lived up to his billing. And then some, he's on pace to shatter the school record for uh, touchdown receptions. And then Hunter Eccles is another one uh, from within the conference, from USC, who's really been that impactful pass rusher uh, that this team needed and was lacking. Um, they have three wins, which is two more than they had all of last season. There's a bunch of different stats you can look at. You know, touchdowns scored, uh, turnovers caused, where they're already, you know, they've already eclipsed last year's totals or they're well on pace to blow past them. So this is a different team. It is a much better team. That doesn't mean that they're capable or ready to beat Oregon, um, but I think they'll they'll uh, put on a pretty good show uh, on Saturday night at Arizona Stadium. At three and two at this point, uh, with wins over San Diego State, who, if anything, they might be one of the disappointing teams uh, on the West Coast, uh, given the year they were having. But be that as it may, uh, a rallying win over North Dakota State, who I realize it's FCS, but obviously they're usually the class of the FCS to where. Uh, quite frankly, I mean, Arizona was an underdog in that game, a home underdog. Uh, so, and that was a heck of a win, quite honestly. And yes, last week's win over Colorado with uh, uh, loss to Mississippi State and Cal, that's Arizona's record. So at three and two, heading into a stretch where on paper right now, it's five straight ranked opponents. By the time they play Washington State, it might be six. Uh, what is the feeling like at this point uh, around the program by way of, all right, here, you know, they're, I'd say they're probably even a little bit ahead of schedule at three and two. Uh, having said that, uh, obviously the next uh, five, six weeks is obviously defining the entire season. We could not just because, well, that's half the season, but yes, it's the half against the, like whoever assembled this schedule by way of timing uh, did not do Arizona very many favors. No, it's, it's really unbalanced in that way. Um, I mean, people are calling it the gauntlet. People are calling it murderer's row. Whatever you know, term you want to attach to it, I mean, it is really rough. There is a bye week thrown in the middle there. Uh, half the games are on the road. 
As you mentioned, five of the six teams are ranked. Their combined record is 26 and four. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, inconceivable that Arizona loses all of those games. But, you know, the way college football is, the way the Pac-12 has been, I think it's more likely than not that there will be an upset or two thrown into the mix. And if Arizona can do that and maybe go two and four in that stretch, you know, they'll be playing for a bowl berth when Arizona State comes to town on uh, November 25th. And that, I think, if you talk about, like, uh, being ahead of schedule, that's ahead of schedule. You know, no one really thought Arizona was in position to possibly earn a bowl berth in year two under Jed Fish, which he's calling year one uh, because he referred to last year as year zero uh, at Pac-12 Media Day. Um, So uh, kudos to them if they're able to pull that off. It's going to be really hard. They're going to be underdogs in, in every single game. Um, they're relatively healthy right now. Who knows what, what, uh, toll injuries will play over the course of this difficult stretch. But if they can do that, um, it, it'd really be something and it would just kind of continue the momentum, uh, that's been building over here. If they go two and four over the next six games. And at that point, I mean, I would be mystified if they didn't win the territorial cup at the end. If they get to six and six by the end of the season, Jed Fish is the coach of the year in the conference. I mean, there's not even a question. Uh, there's there's not even a remote argument in my mind. I mean that that would be a absolutely remarkable job uh, if if they were to actually get the six wins and and the, because exactly to your point because the 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 talent efficiency that he inherited uh, and this team really quote unquote shouldn't be in position uh, to get to that point by the end particularly with just the sequence of the games but um, regardless at three and two at this point I think they've done obviously a, a pretty nice job to begin with. Uh, we'll see how it shakes out um, over the next several weeks in terms of what their season ends up being. But if they were to get there at the end, my goodness, that would be uh, really spectacular. And if they're going to, it's going to be in part because, like you mentioned, Delora and, and obviously this passing game and uh, Jacob Cowing and uh, T Mac uh, McMillan, who obviously we you know, one time Oregon commit, and Cowing was a guy who. Oregon and virtually everybody else in the country pursued in the transfer portal too. So a really talented receiving core. Stylistically, this is nothing like the offense uh, that they played last year because of the change of quarterback and the overhaul of the receiving core. Uh, again, for those who have not just uh, had a chance to see them a lot uh, just yet, Michael, how how would you describe this passing attack? Because people know of Delora. Obviously, they remember him from the Washington State couple of games that they played in the series. Uh, you know, the past couple of years with them, so they know that he can uh, has escape ability, can move the pocket. Um, Probably, you know, leaves himself open to some mistakes here or there as well. But at the same time, you know, he's he's second in the league in passing yards right now. Uh, he, he's, he is really whipping the ball all over the place and has a lot of receivers to turn to. How would you describe, um, beyond just the production, how they have gone about uh, being this prolific in the passing game? Yeah, I, I think the best way to describe it is this is the offense that Jed Fish wanted to run last year and couldn't. For much of the season, for a variety of reasons, and one of them being, you know, ineffective play at quarterback, injuries at quarterback, um, just overall instability at that position. They didn't have uh, nearly uh, as many imposing weapons at wide receiver either compared to what they have now. Um, we should mention, you know, Dorian Singer is kind of the homegrown uh, product uh, in that group, and he's done really well. Also, I mean, he's kind of right behind Jacob Cowing 
uh, in a lot of in a lot of categories. Doesn't have nearly as many touchdowns, but uh, very good in his own right. Kid who uh, had kind of a weird recruitment. He was committed to Texas and uh, or was just about to commit to Texas, and they uh, fired their coaching staff and was kind of thrown into recruiting limbo. Uh, came here as a walk-on, quickly earned a scholarship, became a starter halfway through the season, hasn't looked back. But um, they're doing a lot more damage in the intermediate areas. That's one big change you'll notice, that that space between the linebackers and safeties. Uh, they've done a lot of damage there going across the middle. Uh, their yards after catch uh, are, are way, way improved. Um, Jacob Cowling is especially effective in that area. And then, you know, both Singer and... Uh, Tetaro and McMillan are very capable of making, you know, one-handed catches, contested catches, um, 50-50 balls. They're winning more of those battles. And then finally, they have an emerging tight end in Tanner McLaughlin, another really good story, a guy who walked on uh, from Southern Utah and rehabbed his own, uh, rehabbed his knee injury uh, that he had in the offseason by watching YouTube, a kid from Canada who wanted to play. Uh, for Arizona since he was about 15, 16 years old and, and actually uh, made that dream happen. He's been really effective too. So uh, there's a lot of different um, different weapons for a defense to contend with uh, when you're facing this Arizona team. And we certainly couldn't say that a year ago. Chatting with Michael Lev of the Arizona Daily Star to get a uh, take a look at things from the Wildcats ahead of uh, Saturday night's game between Oregon and Arizona. Uh, defensively, Michael, obviously there was such a talent deficiency, particularly at linebacker. Uh, I mean, we had discussed this over the years where uh, Arizona obviously just letting uh, let things really get away from them there from a talent standpoint uh, under Kevin Sumlin in particular. So Jed Fish and his staff, were, uh, it was going to take some time uh, to really not just turn the entire roster, but particularly on the defensive side. Now, they do bring in a Hunter Eccles. We'll get to him in a second. Uh, but in the broad strokes um, – to this game specifically in an area where I'm sure uh, the Arizona coaching staff is going to be spending most of their week on that side of the ball is Oregon's coming off 351 rushing yards against Stanford, which is a nearly historic performance uh, for Oregon uh, perspectively, uh, as particularly at 9.5 yards a carry. Um, but against the Stanford run defense is not exactly saying much because they allow a whole bunch of yards and half for a while now. Having said that, this is an Arizona team who their major defensive deficiency is the run defense. Uh, and obviously, again, because of the talent perspective, they still have a big gap to close there. So how do you see them matching up? How do you go about if you're going to try and create a, uh, a roadmap by which Arizona is going to have any chance to contain an Oregon ground game? Forget about 350. That was a statistical anomaly and a really bad Stanford defense. I don't think that, you know, repeating that necessarily. But even keep, keeping Oregon under 200 yards rushing, which I, I can't imagine a way that Arizona wins this game without that, how do they pull that off? Yeah, those numbers are very familiar to Arizona fans because they're almost identical to what Cal was able to do <laughs> against Arizona two weeks ago. Um, so a little bit of P PTSD when you threw those out there. Um, and yeah, it's a major, major concern in this game. No question about it. Um, Arizona gave up 283 yards on the ground the previous week against North Dakota State. And I think most people chalk that up to, well, that's just the way North Dakota State plays. I mean, they run the ball 75, 80% of the time. They have 
all these tight ends and fullbacks and they just do a lot of weird things. It's almost like facing, uh, you know, an option team, an armed services uh, uh, program. Um, so maybe you toss that out the window. But then, you know, they had the game against Cal and it was a lot of issues with gap integrity, bad tackling. Uh, when you have those two problems in the same game, um, you're going to give up a lot of yards. So, you know, can they remain fundamentally sound, number one? Uh, can they limit the really big plays? Uh, that's number two. Uh, and then I think number three is, you know, can you force a turnover or two? You know, I think there has to be a little bit of luck involved here. Um, I, I feel like this is going to be a track meet type of game. Uh, Arizona is probably going to be involved in a lot of those over this stretch of games. And when you're in that type of ball game, sometimes the difference is a handful of stops, you know, and that's kind of what the North Dakota State game was. You know, they made two stops at the end, and that's how they were able to win. So, uh, you know, fundamentally sound, limit the really big plays, take the ball away a time or two, and you might have a chance. If they're going to be able to pull that off, uh, I would say that Hunter Eccles is probably going to have to uh, come through with the level of disruption that he's had so far. A uh, USC transfer who's pretty much already surpassed uh, the volume of havoc and production that he had uh, during his USC career uh, already this season at Arizona. Now, of course, he's put in a different role, different, you know, kind of volume of reps and, and opportunities. And that's, I'm sure, what he was looking for. So, you know, a, a young man who's put himself in a nice position is executing with it. Uh, for those who are not quite as familiar, um, give us an idea for, again, this is probably the one major individual matchup uh, on that side where uh, Oregon's offensive line was played extremely well, allowed its first sack of the season uh, this past week. Uh, again, going up against a defensive front who may not be that successful against the run, but uh, from a pass standpoint in particular, uh, Hunter Eccles is the guy who, if Oregon's going to avoid disaster, avoid negative plays, it's going to be because uh, they have to uh, you know, really kind of scheme him out of this one. Uh, how... How has Hunter Eccles been able to be uh, as disruptive as he has been so far? Uh, and other than just throwing a whole bunch of double teams at him, how do you suppose uh, Oregon might be able to neutralize him a little bit? Yeah, Hunter Eccles has been exactly what they hoped he would be. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like played a lot at USC, but I don't think he was ever utilized in the, in the specific role that he's in now where he's kind of the guy um, from a pass rushing standpoint. Uh, that they're trying to feature, um, that they're trying to, uh, you know, open things up for to get to the quarterback. He's got six and a half tackles for losses. He's got three and a half sacks. I believe he had only one and a half sacks in his uh, time as a Trojan. Um, very good length uh, at 6'5 and 250. He's been a really good leader uh, and spokesman for that group as well. Um, they play him at a position that they call the cat. Um She's spelled K-A-T for some reason. Um, and that's, it's a hybrid, you know, uh, line, linebacker slash defensive end. So he will drop into coverage at times, but really um, his primary role uh, is getting after the quarterback. Um, and you know, can he do that against a much better, you know, Oregon offensive line? I feel like Oregon might have the best, most cohesive uh, offensive line group in the conference. Um, you can certainly tell me I'm wrong about that, James, but um, that's that's the way it feels from afar. Um, certainly up there in the, in the top top three, I would say. Uh, Colorado, they're probably in the bottom three and maybe at the very bottom. Uh, so there was just all kinds of pressure 
uh, on Owen McCown last week. Um, I think Pro Football Focus had them with 27 quarterback pressures, which is by far the most I can ever recall Arizona having in a game um, since they started tracking those types of numbers. So to me, I think Hunter Eccles is kind of going to do his thing. The question is, is who else is going to step up uh, and provide uh, some sort of a pass rush? You know, uh, Keon Bars has been a little bit up and down after an All-Pac-12 campaign last year. Um, He's coming off of a foot injury. He's getting double teamed a lot. He doesn't have a sack yet. He does open things up for some other people on the inside. Uh, Paris Shand uh, is a player I like a lot. Who He's a really good athlete, former basketball player, another Canadian. He's got two and a half sacks. Um, made his presence felt last week with a sack and a fumble recovery. Um, Jalen Harris uh, kind of quietly does his job. He's, he's fundamentally sound. He's always in the right position. He um, He's good against the run. Uh, only one and a half sacks so far. Can he get to the quarterback um, and, and provide the support um, that Eccles is going to need because he can't do it all by himself. Yeah, I would agree on all fronts and that, uh, yeah, I think Oregon's uh, offensive line is uh, the best in the league, uh, probably one of the best in the country. And it's not just because of the you know caliber of teams that they've gone up against and this and that. Obviously, they didn't allow a sack against Georgia. Uh, so it wasn't just, oh, well, they're doing it against, you know, bad Pac-12 teams here or there or something. No. You know, frankly, you know, as bad as uh, Stanford may be, uh, Wazoo's not, particularly that defense. You know, Wazoo's going to cause a whole lot of havoc on defense, a whole lot, and they didn't allow Zach there. Uh, and they were passing the ball quite a bit. Uh, and again, George is certainly not going to be a bad defense. So, um, no, I'd put him right on up there. And, and yeah, that certainly not uh, about as polar opposite as Colorado as it gets. Um, last thing uh, for you, Michael, is that um, for – a lot in the, uh, I don't know how many in the program anymore, uh, but you tell me, and, and from the Arizona perspective, but uh, for many of the Oregon fan, I think this is a, a series, but it, mainly just going to Arizona in general, because it's not just Arizona, it's also Arizona State. Um, there's almost like a, a, a feeling of dread uh, when the Ducks have to go to the desert the last decade plus, uh, because something weird happens, some terrible outcome usually happens, a season-defining loss, uh, something awful. Uh, so there's kind of like, that feeling of, uh, you know, around things. Again, I don't know if that's any, anyone inside the program anymore because the last time Oregon even went to Tucson, it was 2018. And while I was there, hardly anyone on the roster uh, still is. So I don't know, you know, especially the new coaching staff, virtually no players still remaining from that game. Uh, on Oregon's perspective, I don't think anyone inside the building feels that way, but I know many of the fan feel that way. Uh, on the other side, Arizona has every reason to feel like, you know, this is, you know, obviously going to be a monumental task uh, uh, inside the building and even among the fan base. But does the Arizona fan, does uh, those who are, you know, paying attention and will definitely be around on, on Saturday night, do they have a uh, outsized degree of optimism because of history in this series where, where they have had some upset wins over Oregon? Uh, and usually been the thorn in their side. Like I say, I mean, it's, they've only met a couple of times in Tucson the last decade, but it has been since 2011 that Oregon has won in Tucson, even if it's only three games. Uh, it's still that long, and it's still been that ugly and bizarre. Yeah, I think that the anxiety on the part of Oregon fans is greater than the optimism <laughs> on the part of Arizona fans in that regard. Uh, but you know what? Hey, you know who can have a, the greatest influence on that? It's probably the fans themselves. You know, I think that that's kind of the 
maybe the X factor in this game um, is can you you know can they create a, a real home field advantage? Can they kind of make things difficult for Bo Nix in that offense? Can they cause a couple false starts at inopportune times and throw the Oregon offense off schedule? Um, Arizona is going to need every advantage, every break uh, that it can get um, to pull this off. And yeah, there is some really weird history there. I mean, how strange looking back is that 2018 game in which Arizona won. Arizona won 44 to 15 over a team with, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL in Justin Herbert, who had one of his worst games. Uh, 24 for 48 for 186 yards in that game. It's, it's almost unimaginable. And I think Oregon was favored by what? Eight and a half, nine and a half, something like that. Um, they were, uh, I think they were ranked at the time. Arizona was not, it was, it was just one of those nights. That was one of the most bizarre, um, performances, not just from when you know the talent on the field and everything else, it was bizarre in that, uh, and we knew it immediately by way of that Oregon just completely abandoned its identity. Forget about how the score got away from them, and then they couldn't necessarily run uh, the way they wanted to. It was like they went in and just said, we're not going to do it. We're going to do things a different way, and we're intent on winning a different way, no matter how it gets. And then when it got away from them, they, they had no choice but to continue throwing. Um, then Herbert got hit uh, high late at the end, and there was the hit on Dylan Mitchell and everything. So, yeah, it was a that was as, as – Wild an outcome by way of that, like you're saying, from a talent standpoint, there is no way to explain that score. Um, there is absolutely no way imaginable that was just bizarre and was probably the high point of the Kevin Sumlin era uh, in Tucson, quite honestly, because that was as good as it ever got, I think, for them uh, and as absolutely mind-boggling uh, a loss as there was for Oregon in the Mario Cristobal era, even though that was year one. And yeah, they had, you know, uh, obviously some nice wins uh, during that year. They also had that that one in particular was just a bizarre loss. Uh, but, uh, but be that as it may, like I say, it's the first trip back since. So we'll see how it comes out on Saturday night. Looking forward to uh, catching up with you again when we get there. And uh, again, appreciate you uh, for all the time here today uh, to give us an early look at this one on Saturday. Thanks for having me. 